Welcome to the sermon podcast for New Life Church's Cabot Campus. We are located at 3400 West Main Street in Cabot, Arkansas. Our service times are Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. To find more information about what we believe, upcoming events, and more, please visit newlifechurch.tv or you can text the word Cabot to 88000. If you guys are ready to study the Word of God this morning, give the Lord a uh, hand clap. Are you thankful for His Word? <laughs> know we got a lot of friends and family that are here visiting because we had baby dedication. I'm glad you guys are hanging out with us. I'm excited to get in this series. Uh, I want to remind you, how many of you guys are signed up to get the daily devotions from our church? How many of y'all get those? Okay, well, if you haven't signed up for those, I'd encourage you to do it. Basically, uh, you'll get a text every morning with a link to a devotion, a video. And uh, throughout the course of the summers we're going through this series, uh, we're going to be teaching verse by verse. So if you like expository teaching, you're going to want to sign up for those devotions every day because uh, we're going to be breaking down the book of Matthew. Of course, we'll be in this series, as I mentioned last week. Later on this month, I'm going to be going on a sabbatical. We're going to have some amazing guest speakers coming in, uh, including Pastor Rick. He's going to come in and speak during that. So we may be a little in and out of this series, but we're going to continue it through the summer. And I encourage you guys to keep up, and you can definitely stay, stay up to date uh, if you're following those devotions. How many of you guys like the print piece that we did, this newspaper? I think that's pretty cool. Uh, the creative department put that together. There's all kinds of stuff in there. Uh, the only thing is we gave it to you. Now, you might be a little distracted like the whole time I'm speaking, but I want you to know I see everything. And I will call you out. I'm joking. I won't do that. Uh, but I want to get right into this. And we're going to start with some scripture that you probably have never read in church before. I would, I would venture to say there's very few of you that have ever read the first chapter of Matthew in church. Uh, we're not going to read through all of it, but the first 17 verses are the genealogy of Jesus. And, uh, and we're just going to read a few verses in there. And, and, and I don't want you to zone out because what's, what's amazing is when we start looking at the context of some of these names and some of these characters, I think it's really going to speak to you. I think it's going to encourage you and I think it's going to challenge you. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amimadad. Amimadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, King David. Okay, how many of y'all ever heard of King David before in the Bible? Okay, well, we know that Jesus is a direct descendant of David's line, and, the, and it covers the rest of that. And if I'm just being totally honest with you, the reason why I'm going to stop right there is because it took me like three hours just to make sure I could get those names right. And so I know if I went any further, I wouldn't be able to pronounce a lot of those names. And if you want to know what it says, I'd encourage you to get the Bible app and have somebody with a British accent read it to you, okay? But we're not doing it right now, okay? But here's the thing. Uh, I think that this portion of Scripture can be majorly overlooked and neglected. How many of y'all, you would say, there is a portion of your home that is neglected. There is a room, there's a space in your home that is neglected. Like we all have that space, right? 
It may be your garage. There are cobwebs up in that. Like you would tell people like avoid. I don't want people looking in there. You keep that thing closed all the time. And we know how bad it is because when you can't park your car in your garage, we already know don't go in there, right? But there's a storage room somewhere. There's an attic space. There's a crawl space. There's some portion of your house where you don't want people to see. Okay, and as etiquette, I would say, suggest this. When you go to somebody else's house, don't go opening doors on closed rooms, all right? Those doors are probably closed for a reason. Don't be looking up in there. How many of y'all growing up, you remember having a junk drawer? How many of y'all had a junk drawer, okay? Man, how many of y'all still have a junk drawer, okay? You're just keeping it going, keeping it going strong. And I would suggest that the size of your junk drawer will probably indicate if you have some hoarding tendencies. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. All right? But a true hoarder is offended at the fact that we would call it a junk drawer because they'd be like, that's not junk. That is the essentials of life. (laughs) You'd think, man, look at these, these treasures. Look at all these things. It's amazing. But we know what's in there, right? Like growing up, if you just weren't sure where to find a random screw, where to find a random whatever, check the drunk drawer because there's all kinds of randomness in there. There's about six dried up things of super glue because those things never stay good, right? There's a couple greasy pennies in there. We don't know why they're greasy, but they're greasy and they're in there. There's probably two or three 22 shells in there. There's just random stuff up in that drunk drawer. And the thing is we go to them every once in a while, but for the most part, they're neglected. We just kind of push them aside. Well, I think the first 17 verses of Matthew are neglected. This is probably not something that you've ever heard someone preach on. I've never spoken on the first 17 verses. And even worse than that, there's been plenty of times when I've been reading through the scripture and I don't even mess with it. I just like, okay, there's a bunch of names there that most of them I can't pronounce. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. Like I've felt that way about this. But here's the truth. The truth is this. When it comes to the word of God, all of it is useful. All of it is useful. All of it is like food for our souls. How many of you can think of a food that does not look good, but it tastes good? All right? Like, I think about this sometimes. Like, who is the first person that looked at a crawfish and thought, we should eat that. I think that'd be good. Where'd you find it? In the ditch. Like, we're all the nasty? Yep. We should eat it. Like, it just, that's perplexing to me, right? I think about guacamole. Okay, like, nobody's, like, when I I think about guacamole, I think about looking at guacamole, there's never been a time like, hmm. That looks so appetizing. I mean, if you're being honest, guacamole looks like something that came out of the south end of a northbound baby. That's what guacamole looks like, all right? But if you've ever had guacamole, you're like, oh, yeah, somebody brought the guac. Because even though it don't look good, you know it is packed full of good. Well, the first 17 verses of Matthew are guacamole. It don't look good, but if you understand context, if you understand who some of these people are, all of a sudden you realize, man, there's a lot of good in there. The gospels all start a little bit different. The gospel of John, it's like super poetic. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Then you go to Mark. I like Mark because really it's Peter's gospel. 
I like how Peter thinks. Like, he's my boy. He's like, I got some stuff to say. Mark, I want you to write it down, right? Like, he had him put it down. But, it, but really, like that gospel, it could be a TED Talk. It's like right down to the bottom line, right to the point. I love it. And then Matthew, at first glance, especially the beginning of it, like the only person who'd be interested in the first part of Matthew would be Maury Povic. He'd be like, and the father is. Like, who's your daddy? But Matthew, it's like, okay, this is not a great way to start a book because this is not interesting. Like, you need to go to seminary and figure out how to write a good book, how to write a service or a sermon. Let me tell you why Matthew did it the way he did it and a few other things hopefully you won't forget. First of all, the life of Jesus is a historical fact. And Matthew is setting the precedence for that. In other words, Jesus didn't just pop up on the scene out of nowhere. Jesus wasn't a figment of someone's imagination. There are a lot of cults and there are a lot of other world religions that basically came about because of someone's imagination running wild. Like, I was under a tree and an angel gave me this book. And I know that it's completely true. And we're like, was that before or after the peyote? It sounds like you were eating some mushrooms or something there. Like, something's up with that. But a genealogy, man, this was basically a Jewish birth certificate. So they took very, very close attention. It gave a person its legitimacy of birth. It showed legal rights. So obviously it had to be really accurate. And they cared a lot about this. They paid a lot of attention to this. How many of y'all ever been out at like a little league field or something like that and you see a kid on a different team and you think, I'd like to see that kid's birth certificate. Like, I don't, like, like this can happen. I guess around Little League, like the World Series Little League, you know, I have different countries coming in and playing in that. And not every country keeps as close a record of birth certificates and all that. So I guess a few years ago, this kid was on the mound throwing 80 miles an hour with a full mustache. Like the game was over, he drove off in a Mustang. <laughs> Probably an Alabama recruit, let's just be honest, you know. <laughs> and everybody's like, ah, yeah, that don't look right. Well, a few things about this genealogy that brings us some encouragement. Christianity is not a startup religion. It's not like it just started in Bethlehem at one point. It's the continuation and fulfillment of God's plan since the beginning of the human race. Another thing about this genealogy, which is really powerful, there are five women in this genealogy. Okay, why is that powerful? Because you may just glance over this, but understand the context of the culture at that time. The culture at that time is they didn't really value women. They were second-class citizens. So a religious, judgmental person at the time of Matthew, there would be two things that they would wake up every day and thank God for. They'd wake up every day and thank God that they weren't a Gentile, and they would thank God they weren't a woman. And Matthew sticks it to them. He shows them, look, there are some powerful women in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus would not have come about without their obedience, without what happened in their lives and through their lives. That's powerful. Another thing is in this genealogy, there's a lot of ethnicities and a lot of different races. Moabite, Canaanite, Canaanite, 
Jesus was multiracial. He was multiracial, which that destroys any teaching that there's a superior race or that there's inferior races. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is the human race, period. And I'm thankful to be a part of a big, colorful family. And I'm excited to get to heaven and see just how colorful of a family are. But by the way, I want our church to look like it's gonna look like in heaven. That's the way it should be. But I love that. It shows that in this genealogy. Also, it shows you have roots. You have roots. When Jesus was standing on trial before Pilate, if you remember, Pilate's wife was up the whole night before and she was disturbed by these dreams. And so she went to her husband. She said, you need to be careful how you deal with this man. There's something about this man you need to be careful. So when Pilate looks at Jesus, he doesn't say, what have you done? Okay, which is what you would probably ask if you were like wondering why somebody needs to be on. Like, what'd you do? He didn't ask that. He actually asked, where are you from? The reason why that's powerful is because even Pilate recognizes the power of a genealogy, the power of someone's roots. In other words, if he knows where where Jesus is from, he'll be able to establish what his roots are and whether or not he's a real problem or not. Because even Pilate knew the prophecies about the Messiah, about the king. It was handed down. So he asked, where are you from? And right here, Matthew is answering Pilate's question. We live in a culture where there's not a lot of roots right now. If you think about that, like there's not a lot of people that are wanting to live and die in the town that they were born in. But there's also a hunger and desire to understand where your roots are. That's why we have Ancestry.com and 23andMe. These companies where you can trace all this stuff down. You can figure out exactly where you came from. But the most important thing for you to know, if you are in Christ, you're in his family tree. You are helping develop that family tree right now. In Romans 11, it talks about being grafted in. And I love that because it's a great picture. You can graft plants, okay? So I'm not a plant person at all. My my wife has become a plant lady, um, which is only slightly less disturbing than a cat lady, okay? Like it's, there is a lot, there is a lot. And some of you just got so offended. You're like, I can't believe he said that. We got a lot of plants in my house, okay? So she may have known about this, but I didn't know this. But you can actually take, they would talk about it in reference to an olive tree. You can take an olive tree and a branch on an olive tree, and if you cut it in a very specific way and open up the bark, you can take a smaller olive branch that's cut in a specific way. You can stick it into the cut of the original branch, the bigger branch, and if you bind it correctly, that new branch will become a part of that tree. It's grafting it in. Man, what a cool picture that happened for each one of us. Because the truth of the matter is, we are all Gentiles. Unless you're a Jew and I haven't met you yet, for the most part, it's safe to say, we're all Gentiles. And what that means is naturally, we don't get to inherit what Jesus had, naturally. But supernaturally, Jesus was cut in a strategic way so that we could be added to the family of God so that we 
could be grafted in and bound to him as the original tree. I love that. It says this in Galatians 3.26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's neither uh, male and female. Okay, now don't read too much into that based on current ideas. Okay? Let's remember the culture I'm talking about. What he's saying is you don't get to look at women as a lower species. You don't get to look at women like they don't have value. Okay? That's what he's saying. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have roots all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back. And I think that that should be encouraging because let's be honest. Some of us, if we just look at our natural family tree, we're like, man, they don't, that is not pretty. Number two, God uses people who are less than ideal. God uses people that are less than ideal. There's this major difference between Old Testament genealogies and the New Testament. If you go back to Genesis 5, it's one of the first places they talk about the genealogy following Adam leading up to Abraham, okay? But I want you to see if you can notice the difference between this genealogy and the genealogy that we started with. If you go to verse 3 of uh, chapter 5, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, okay, they lived a long time back then. Some of you guys are like, wait a minute. Okay, the atmosphere was completely different. Uh, before, before the fall of man, God, Adam and Eve would have lived forever. Okay, and, and a lot of that was just because before sin, the environment that God created was so perfect, there was no aging. Some of you are like, man, we need that right now. Like, <laughs> gravity works, okay? It says he's 130 years old, and he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. It goes on to say, then Seth lived 105 years. He became father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Have you picked up on the difference? The difference is the New Testament genealogies are focused on birth and life. The Old Testament is focused on when you died. So right from the beginning, Matthew is establishing that under the new covenant, it's about life. It's about things being born and given a chance. Life. We're moving forward from death to life because of the birth of Jesus. In the, Old in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the wages of sin is death under the New Covenant, but the gift of God is eternal life. But look at the characters here. Look at the characters in this genealogy. Prostitutes, adulterers, people who worshiped idols. You ever had a cousin that embarrassed you? Like, man, I'm so thankful they don't have the same last name as us. Or a crazy aunt that shows up to your ball games and yells and screams way too loud. Don't look at anybody right now. I'm trying to help you out, okay? 
Well, if you look at this genealogy, you'd think the savior of the world would have a better looking family tree. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if you went and you start looking at your ancestors, like if you went to Ancestry.com or something like that, you're going to find at least a couple pretty colorful characters in your past, in your family tree. Uh, especially if you're Italian or Irish or Cajun, okay? Like, you're going to have some character, colorful characters. I don't know why, but those, they just, they always have some colorful people, okay? Angela, her family's Italian. And I can't talk any more about it or they'll kill me, okay? Like, they, all right, it's, all right, it's like Godfather stuff in there, okay? But I was wondering, like, this, this, this whole concept of a Cajun, like, like, they have this reputation, okay? If you're a Cajun, you're like, yeah, we do. Don't talk about me, all right? <laughs> like, I'll cut you, preacher, okay? Uh, but I was wondering, like, where did, where did all that come from? So I asked one of our pastors. By the way, I don't know if this gives you any comfort at all, but pretty much the top leadership of our church, they're all Cajuns, okay? So it is the grace of God that we have a great church still, right? Because, I mean, these Cajuns, they're crazy. But I asked this pastor, I was like, where, where did that come from? He's like, well, here's the deal. Here's the history on it. Back in Louisiana, it was primarily still French. Uh, There's a bunch of French men there, and they're on the bayous. But they couldn't get any women to come and live on the bayous with them. So the leader, at that point, he wrote back to the king of France. He said, hey, we need some women, or we're not going to be able to have babies, and we're not going to be able to establish that this is our land. Like, we, we need some help. Is there any way that you can convince some women to come over here that can marry our men so that we can have this, this, this place, have this country. And the king obliged. And he took all the women from all the women's prisons and he sent them to Louis. This is history, people. <laughs> sent all these, these inmates from all the women prisons <laughs> to Louisiana. So if you ever wonder where Boudreaux and Thibodeau came from, that's where they came from. And now it makes a lot of sense, right? Here's what you need to know. No matter how crazy or colorful your family history is, no matter what your family dynamics are or used to be, they cannot define or even limit you unless you allow them. Unless you allow them. I don't know that's wrong, but honestly, it's part of my testimony. Don't fall into a victim type thinking. Because some may think, man, if I only had better parents, like if I, I, if I had better parents, I would have had half a chance at life. If they had just made more money, if they made better choices, if they'd been around better people, my life would be better. Okay, well, look at Jesus' family tree. Look at where he came from. What do you see in there? Mental Ill illnesses, character issues, spiritual issues, sex workers murderers, addicts, some people that were even possessed by demons. I want you to listen to this truth. All of the curses and strongholds were broken at Calvary. They were all broken at Calvary. It just depends if you're wanting to live under that truth or a natural truth. I think there's a shift that you have to make in your mindset. And it's necessary and it's healthy and honestly, it's something that even Jesus did. 
In John chapter 2, verse 23, it says this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all people. And it goes on to say, for he knew what was in each person. So what does that mean? It means we should never entrust our life or our identity to people. Not fans, not friends, certainly not foes, but not even family. You don't entrust your identity to people. It doesn't mean you don't have relationships and it doesn't mean you don't trust people. You just don't put the whole of your identity in what people do. Because when you live in a place where you have entrusted yourself and your identity and your purpose and your fulfillment in people, you will live paranoid and insecure and disappointed. And eventually you'll lose faith. And trust yourself to your Father God. And trust your identity to Him. That's what Jesus did. That's what He did. And then what do you do? You use it to love people. You use it to love people. What do you do when you have all these misfits and embarrassments in your family? It's a testimony. You use it. Jesus came from a family of sinners. And because of that, he knew how to be a friend to a sinner. He knew how to love people who were sinners. Number three, God is still restoring people. God is still restoring people. So in that genealogy, we read this name, Rahab. Rahab was a harlot. She was a prostitute. But she's all over the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. She's in the historical books, the wisdom books, the genealogy, and the hall of faith in, in Hebrews. She's mentioning all this. Why? Because it's the picture of her story that is meant to be the picture of all of our stories. Who was she? Rahab had a brothel that was built in the walls of Jericho. And the Israelites sent two spies to go into Jericho to try to get information on how fortified it was, what it was gonna look like. While they were there, they found out that there were spies, but they couldn't find them. And they wind up going to Rahab's brothel. And Rahab hid them and then helped them escape. Okay? And... After that, they said, hey, you and your whole household. Okay, well, think about her household. Okay, think about who else was probably there. All of you will be saved. But as a symbol, what she did is she hung this crimson red cord out of the window of her house so that the Israelites could see where her house is. It didn't matter if the Israelites could see it or not. But we know the story, right? Eventually the walls came down and it crushed everyone in there. But the walls did not fall at her house. It wasn't the cord that saved her house. It was her faith to trust and be obedient to what she'd been asked to do that saved her house. Which is so important because there's a lot of symbols you may hold onto that you think that's salvation, but your salvation comes from the condition of your heart, trusting and hoping in Christ and Christ alone. 
But that cord, there was a couple things with that. It was a whisper of what the blood of Jesus would do for all of us to save us from our sins. But it's also a prophetic picture that out of her house, out of that house, there would be a legacy through that bloodline. Isn't that crazy? And was it ever? So what do you do after you receive this saving grace like Rahab did? I don't want you to miss this. One of the most important things you do is you start walking with a new family. You got a new family now. And that's what Rahab did. She pulled up stakes and she made new relationships. And one day she bumped into this architect named Salmon. And Salmon fell in love with her. And it was like, this crazy romantic story, Hallmark Channel couldn't even dream this one up. But Salomon, the powerful thing to think about is he knew everything about her and he still loved her, still accepted her, still wanted to be with her. Isn't that the goodness of God? Look, whether, whether you wanna see it this way or not, that is a picture of what Jesus did for us. And in spite of knowing everything that we've done and everything we are, he still loved us still accepted us. Well, Salmon and Rahab, they had a little bay, settled down, and eventually Salmon began building this little community that eventually would be called Bethlehem. That's where Bethlehem were, the birthplace of Jesus. Isn't that cool? God's amazing. So what's powerful about that is obviously if God can take that mess and turn it into a miracle, he can take what seemed like trash and turn it into a treasure. What do you think he can do with your life? When your life is under the saving grace of who he is and moving with his family, the body, the church, his will is gonna be done in your life as it is in heaven. How many of you guys recognize these lyrics? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We recognize that. That was written by a man named John Newton in the 1700s. John Newton was a slave trader. He was the captain of a ship. And at one point he got into this storm. And after 11 hours of him fighting at the wheel of this storm, he finally, he knew it was, he wasn't gonna be able to do this long. His boat was taken on water. And he cried out to God. He said, God, if you'll save me, save me, I need you. And almost immediately, the storm started to subside and his boat was able to drift to safety. Well, I got his attention. And after that, he committed his life to the Lord. He started studying the word. He actually started his own church, started speaking. Eventually, as he got older, his memory started to fail him. But anytime he was ever asked, he could always vividly remember two things that he would tell people. I am a great sinner and Jesus Christ is a great savior. That was the only message he needed. And that hymn, this hymn that he wrote though, think about the millions of people's lives that that's impacted and touched. When he wrote Amazing Grace, that just speaks of the sweet love that he found in Jesus. The same grace that, that Jesus has for all of God's children. We're lost, we're blind in sin. He understood that God had saved someone like him 
And if God saved someone like him, then that, that, that had to be some amazing grace. But he also said he called himself a wretch because that was the only word that he knew to describe someone as miserable as himself. Because before Jesus, he didn't value any life. He didn't value his own life. He certainly didn't value the life of the slaves. He was wretched. He needed the grace of God. How sweet the sound. One of the reasons partially that he wrote that is that as soon as he called out to Jesus, the noise, the overwhelming noise of that storm subsided. How sweet it is when Jesus brings peace, when he can quiet the noise of our own minds, our own thoughts, and can just center us around the simplistic, innocent, but powerful grace and love of Jesus. Every person in the genealogy of Jesus is an example of the grace of God, every single one of them. And every person here today, especially if you know this Jesus, you know you're a great example of that grace. And you know he's still doing a work in you. You haven't arrived. You're thankful for that. The truth is this, everyone who receives the invitation to join the family of God will have that saving grace. You'll be grafted in, but not all accept it. Not all accept it. And at one point or another, we have to decide that we're gonna start denying ourselves and stop denying who he is. So going back to that, that picture of being grafted in, I, I think what happens is there's some people in here, you've just never been connected to the tree. Like you, you've never accepted what Jesus has done for you. You've never accepted that, that gift, the price that he paid for your salvation. And some of you, you, you have, but here's what happens. In order for one of those branches to be grafted in, they can't be moved around. They certainly can't be separated. That original bond has to remain strong. And I think what's happened with some of you is you have let the winds of culture, your feelings, even your mistakes move you from where you were originally intended to be grafted and connected. And maybe you just need to rededicate your life and come back to Jesus. Get regrafted in. I don't know where it's at with you. Jesus does, and he loves you. This is a place of salvation. Today can be the day of your salvation if you need him. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. If you were just gonna take an honest assessment of your life and you were gonna be real, you know right now, because I believe the Spirit of God He's even tugging on your heart. He's speaking to you right now. And he's trying to show you, not in a condemning way, not in a judging way. He's trying to show you that you need a relationship with God. You're away from him. You've never surrendered to him. Or you made a decision to follow Jesus. At least you thought you did. But if you were honest right now, you feel away from God. And it may mean that you just need to come back to him. You need to rededicate your life to him. Whatever the case may be, God is certainly here to meet with you. He loves you. He loves you.
And as we've already discovered, it doesn't matter how jacked up your past may be. It doesn't matter who your dad was, who your mama was, who your grandfather, grandfather was, your grandmother. It doesn't matter how bad your family tree may look. Because of Jesus, you can become a part of his family tree today and start a new legacy rooted in Christ Jesus. If you're here and you would just say, man, I know I'm away from God and I need him. I want you to know, first of all, there's some people more than likely that are around you that are believers, they're Christians, and they're praying for you right now because they understand how important this decision is. They've received this grace. They've received this mercy and they want you to, accept, to have it too. But I wanna ask you to do something because I think when it comes to salvation especially, it's important that it's, it's more than just your thoughts or even just your feelings. Your heart's the most important thing. But I think when you're calling on Jesus to save you, there's something powerful about all of your being saying, I need him, including your physical body. And so I'm just gonna ask you, nobody's looking around, but if you would be willing to admit to me that you need Jesus, that you're ready to call on him or come back to him today, I want you to put your hand up right now across this room. Be bold, come on, be bold. He was bold for you. I got you there at the back. Anyone else? I need Jesus. I'm ready to call on him as my Lord and Savior. I'm away from him. Anyone else? Got you, bro. Thanks for being bold. As soon as I see you, you don't have to keep your hand up the whole time unless you want to. Saying, I need Jesus. I'm ready to call on him as my Lord and Savior. I'm away from him. I need him. Anyone else? Ready to call on Jesus. Okay. Father God, I thank you so much for those couple of hands. If you raise your hand, just have an honest conversation with the Lord. You can say it loud enough for your own ears to hear it, that's fine, or you can say it in your own heart. I would say this, the word says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you can be saved. And so I encourage you, you need to tell somebody at some point. And a great way to declare your faith is water baptism. We'll have an opportunity coming up in a couple weeks. But talk to him right there. Say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I believe that you paid the price on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the grave. And when you did, you defeated sin and death itself. And I thank you that because of that, I have the hope of heaven. One day I'm gonna spend eternity with you. But I don't wanna wait for that day to live my purpose. So God, I pray that you would help me by the leading of your spirit, the standard of your word, and the encouragement and strength of the body of Christ. Help me to live for you. Thank you, Jesus for grafting me in. Thank you, Jesus, that in spite of anything I've ever done, who my family is or any other dynamic, because of you, Jesus, today, I'm rooted in you. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for that love. Lord, we're all thankful for that. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the power that even a list of names is life transforming when we understand the God behind those names. Thank you for that. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.